Romans 3, verses 21 through 31. Uh, I believe 21 through 31, yes. Um, and I'm really excited for this morning because uh, just, just to get right to it, this is where Paul effectively pivots in what he's speaking about. So for the last two chapters, uh, for chapters one and two of Romans, we've seen this consistent theme where he's talking about what we would maybe call hard topics, things about God's wrath, God's judgment, God's righteousness. And, and just to be frank, while Romans is this thick book that I think any believer should be like looking through and studying because it's so rich uh, with doctrine and, and the Christian life and things like that, I think for someone who maybe isn't versed in the Bible or someone who's new to this, if you were to read the first couple chapters of Romans, you might want to stop right away. You might not even want to get to the rest of it because you're like, dang, this is my introduction to Christianity, God's wrath, judgment, and righteousness. I don't know. But what we see here is we see kind of the turning point where Paul goes from the problem to the solution. He goes from the problem to the solution. And just like this video, that's Paul Washer, by the way, if you've never heard him, powerful preacher, uh, man of God, definitely, love, he, that's called a sermon jam, those things are really cool. But what he uh, showed us and said to us is, is pretty simple, and we've said this over and over and over again. But the reason Paul has to just define the problem so deeply to us is that if we don't understand the problem deeply, we'll have no desire for depth of a solution. And I would even argue for many of us, we subscribe to this thing called Christianity, and we do the Christian stuff, and yet there really isn't a depth to our desire for the solution. And I think it's why myself and so many of us in time uh, and in different seasons of life can be so flippant with Jesus. We can be so back and forth. We can be so shallow, even though we claim that we know that there's a Savior who died for us, everything we've ever done wrong. And he had to die in a horribly brutal way. And then he was literally raised from the grave, like amazing stuff. And it doesn't change anything about us. Because until we understand the depth of the problem, like how big of a pit we were in, we will never look up. We will never look up. And Paul paints that picture for us. And Mark last week, I found it so funny. We were in pastor's meeting and Mark goes, I feel like, you know, good cop, bad cop. I always get the bad cop messages. <laughs> and I was like, well, duh, I make sure I get the good ones. <laughs> No, it just worked out that way. But last week, he, he talked about this idea of no error, no excuse, no exception, and no exemption. And again, that, that in and of itself can feel like a hopeless message, can it? There is no way out of this thing. No matter who you are or how good you think you've done or how great your family was or how terrible your family was or whether you follow all the religious rules or you follow none of them, no exception, you've sinned and fallen short. And therefore, God's wrath and God's righteous judgment are for you, and they are for me. And then he very rudely went into my passage. <laughs> we had a serious conversation about that. And he said, I had to, and I was like, you're right, you did. <laughs> but he dipped in, just, just touched on it, just touched on verses 21 and 22, saying the solution is here, and today we're going to talk a whole lot more about the solution. And I just want to prepare you, um, as we shepherd this, this time and this moment, we are going to give all of us an opportunity to respond to the solution that has been given to us through Christ Jesus. So I just want you to even be preparing in your own heart, and we'll talk more about it later. 
But we're in these first three chapters, and, and again, I just think for in the culture that we live in, this culture of uh, tolerance and acceptance, and I don't ever want to hear anything hard because that's just not fun. I'd rather just avoid everything that's difficult at all. And I think we could point to the culture and say they do that, and then yet we should all go, we do that too, right? We see these hard topics, and just honestly, it's like, oh, this is a rough start, Paul. Maybe talk about something else. But like, like we said, he's setting the stage, and this passage, this this portion we're about to read, I think, is where he transitions. So let's read uh, verses 21 through 31. I would encourage you to be in it for yourself, but I'll read it to you, and it'll be on the screens. I'm reading out of the NIV, and it says this. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is such an important verse. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then he continues, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. A.K.A., you can't do anything to earn it. Because this is, this is wordy, right? This is, is kind of churchy, depending on your background. But what he's saying is, like, you just couldn't do good enough to earn it. You couldn't. So we maintain that a person is justified by faith, apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. Since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. So like we said, this is, this is a culmination. This is, this is the beginning of the solution. And so much more of Romans is than what we do about understanding this solution. He, he, but again, it's just context is so important, right? So he's writing to who? The Roman church. He understood. We talked about this in week number one. He would have understood the audience that he was writing to. That this was a diverse church. Like this was the the metropolitan, like New York City of the time. People coming from all over the place to do trade, to do business, uh, to find jobs and careers and opportunities and whatever it may be. It is a melting pot of people and ideologies and beliefs. So he starts this letter so unique compared to most of his other letters, most of his other, the other churches he wrote to. And I think he does it because he's saying, hey, all of you have different backgrounds. All of you have different understandings of religion, right? You believe this. You think it goes this way. You think you have to uh, do these types of religious activities. And it mentions, like, some of you think you have to be circumcised and under this, that, and that, and all these things. And he's saying, hey, 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 I'm going to spend almost three chapters talking about how every single one of us has a problem. Doesn't matter where you've been, doesn't matter where you're going, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter, frankly, what you even believe. We all have a problem, and it's this thing called sin. 
and it's, it's, it's on everybody. Like, none of us can get away from it. He says things like, it's significant. We all have it. We've all partaken it. If Ephesians 5, it's so awesome. My brother read out of Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, verse 7, it literally says, do not be partners or partakers with them, implying we all have. We all have. We have all partook, if you will, of this thing called sin. And because of that, God has to do something about it. If God is good, which is the, is the age-old question, if God's real, is he good? And, and if these things happen, how can God be good? We're going to talk about that in a second. If God is good, and God is just, and God is righteous, which, friends, I really hope he is, or we are wasting our time here. If those things are true, then he has to do something about his creation turning against him. He has to. And I think we hear people, like I mentioned, argue all the time against God, saying, well, if God is good, if God is just, if God is righteous, like you're saying, then how could these things happen? Anybody ever heard a question like that? If God's good, then why why is that happening? How could this be real if God is in control and God is ultimately good? Friends, you want to know the answer? He did do something about it. Because there is this thing called sin that infects absolutely everything. So the brokenness you're pointing out that you say, well, how could God be good if this is happening? God didn't do it. Sin did. But God, 2,000 some years ago, came and actually did something about it. So when we say things like, well, if God's good, how could this be happening? What we're not understanding is that sin did it and God already dealt with it. So God is not only good, but he's already finished the job. It's done. And that same Christ we're talking about, John 16, says, In this world you will find trouble, but take heart. Why? For I have overcome it. He's saying you're still going to see trouble. Things aren't always going to feel good in your human fleshly thing. But listen, I have already finished the job. I've already overcome this whole thing. So when you ask how could you be good, God, when this is happening, he's, he's sitting up there and he's like, I already finished it. It's done. What do you mean? How could I be good? There needed to be a payment for something, and I paid it for you. And you're still going to see trouble on this earth because sin is still here. Yet he has overcome the world. It drives me insane, to be frank, when people just act like God's not present. And I understand that life is hard and things are real and stuff can hurt. I understand that. I'm not discrediting that at all. In fact, God tells us those things. But when we look at our circumstances and and then question God, I think we're just missing that he already did it. If Jesus died on that cross and rose up from the grave offering you salvation and did nothing else for the next 20, 2,050 years, he already did enough. He did enough. But you know what the beautiful thing is? He didn't stop. He gave us the Holy Spirit. Therefore, he's still doing something right now in you if you know him. Right now, he's still doing it. So God is good and God is just, and that's why he had to do something about it. And Paul's teaching here, just verse 23 and 24, gosh, they should be memory verses for all of us. Like, like it's just one of the most powerful deposits in all of Scripture. All have sinned and fallen short, but through Jesus, all can be justified freely. My point is super simple to get us kicked off. All have sinned, but all can be saved. All have sinned, but all 
can be saved and friends. I just, I just, because as I was crafting, you know, this message and these points, I wrote this um, or something similar to it, and I was like, oh, it just seems really like mundane. It seems really simple. And God was like, if this is simple to you, you have, you think you figured out life, and you haven't. Like, if this is simple to you then like something, something is not stirring up in here because this is the most transformational, life-changing, uh, anti-religious idea ever, ever. No, it separates our faith from every single other faith. Here, I, I, if you've heard me teach, I, I like to delineate between religions. I like to delineate between faith bases, not to knock anybody else who believes other things, but I will tell anyone who believes anything other than Jesus Christ, I love you, I think you're wrong, and I think there's gonna be an eternal consequence for that decision, right? Why? Because I look at this and I say, okay, your religion says you have to live a bunch of ways. You need to pray at certain times. You need to go to the certain masses and you have to take certain sacraments. And when you don't, you gotta, you gotta go to a priest who's gonna forgive you somehow, even though the Bible's super, super clear that that is not how that goes. You know what I'm saying? And whatever, fill in the blank with whatever it might be that you're trying to go do something. My faith, the only faith that says this, says you can't do it, but if you believe in the only one who can and did, you will be saved. It's the only religion that says that. It's the only one. And I don't know about you. It, like, like, I'm not trying to, again, call out any people that believe things a little differently than us. But, like, did anybody grow up Catholic by chance? I think a lot of us did. You know, my, my mom did, right? Not knocking Catholicism. I know, I know some, like, Jesus-loving Catholics. I do. I do. I also know some really confused Catholics, all right? Some of y'all are confused, too. It is what it is. The ground's level to foot of the cross, okay? Amen? Hallelujah. <laughs> But maybe you grew up in that type of background. Maybe you grew up in just an overly religious household. Uh, you know, maybe you grew up in just really strict settings where you had to be certain ways and act certain ways. Friends, whatever it might have been, is that not exhausting? It is. You want to know why so many, again, not calling out anything, so please don't take it this way. But, but we've had people come here and be like, I'm a recovering Catholic, okay? <laughs> I didn't say it. They said it. And I think the heart behind what they're saying is that they were living under a yoke, a burden that was not of Jesus, not of God, and it is exhausting to live that way. And God never intended. Like when, when the Bible says it is for freedom you are set free, I don't hear it is for a lot of religious duties you're set free. It's not what I hear. It's not for being shamed for your mistakes that you're set free. No, 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 no. It is for freedom that I am set free. And if religious yoke or structure or strict rules and regulations have you feeling burdened, that's not of God. The Bible says that his burden is easy and his yoke is what? So if you feel heaviness because of religious rules, you're not talking to the same God as me. You're not. And that's not to, again, talk down on anybody or anything. It is to invite you into freedom. It's to invite you into something real. That is not what other people are preaching, not what other religions are offering. We know the one true God. There aren't these magical standards that we have to, uh, we have to meet. In fact, that's why this is so revolutionary. Because when he was writing to these people, they believed they had to just fulfill all these things to get close to God. And Jesus came and said, I'm just going to stir the whole pot up and make a whole bunch of people mad. Because you can't do it. You can't. Go give all the sacrifices. Go to the temple as much as possible. Make sure you memorize the entire Torah. Go do it. Won't get you to heaven. Won't get you to heaven. Remember a couple weeks ago I talked about the ladder mentality? 
I really want us to embrace this type of thinking because what we do without knowing it is we say, I'm just going to get one rung closer by doing the right things to Jesus. But the problem with that type of thinking is the minute you fail, you feel like you fell 10 rungs past what you just climbed up. That's called shame, guilt, and condemnation. There is no condemnation for who? Come on. Amen. This was revolutionary. God stirred up this whole pot. And you want to know why I think um, our faith is not only the most unique one because of this, but also it just perturbs so many religious people? Do you want to know why religious people hate to see people walking in freedom in Jesus? It's mind-blowing to me. Oh, my gosh, friends, I have to tell you a story, and it just makes me want to headbutt this floor. It really does. I just had... Amanda, you in the room? I don't know if Amanda's here. Uh, one of my good, my sister, she's one of our awakened leaders. She's a nurse. Uh, and she was in a hospital, this was recent. She was in a hospital room and a priest came, a Catholic priest came to meet one of his congregates. That's awesome. That's good leadership, right? Coming to see your people. But the, what she overheard makes me itch to my core. And, and apparently one of the other nurses was like, uh, you know, she, she tries to talk to God. Like she's been in here praying because she wants whatever. And the priest said, the priest said, well, that's why I'm here so that he'll hear us. No, no, and, and this man, God bless him for trying to follow the Lord, and what, and what, but it's just not, no. If I need you to talk to God, I don't want to talk to God because you're annoying. No, friends, no, 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 that is not our God. That is not Jesus. That is not what we're reading here, that all have sinned, but all can be freely justified, freely the cost is no longer on you. Therefore, you can't do anything to pay for it. The debt is unpayable by you. The debt's unpayable. The only person who could pay it is the one with the unlimited bank account. We all know it's none of us. <laughs> Some of you are like, my bank account is inverted. Okay, it's got negatives. I don't know. All have sinned. But all can be saved. And I think there's a second reason that, that people hate this message of freedom. People push against it. And even if we've experienced Christ, it, our fleshly nature can still just be to do the right things, right? Can it? Like, I know I love Jesus. And I've walked in some of the freedom. And yet I have this tendency and this inclination to just go do a bunch of stuff. And then I burn myself out and I'm exhausted. I do this to myself a lot, to be honest. I do a whole bunch of stuff for God without God. And one of the reasons I think so many people dislike this freedom and that it's hard is because Jesus said something super crazy. He called himself God. And here's the truth. We then have two decisions when it comes to this man calling himself God. We either ignore him or we have to listen to everything he says. <laughs> there is no in-between. We can't embrace and believe that someone was God and not do what he says. So I think the reason other religions really dislike this idea of like Jesus, incarnate God, is because if he was really God, we'd have to listen to him. And if he was really God, it takes the power out of whose hands? Our hands. And guess what, friends? As humans, we really like what? Control. Do you know how many uh, church folk don't even know this, but like fight to have complete control of their own salvation? Man, so you, man we can't even make toast right in the morning, and you think that you have control of your own salvation? I burn eggs. I don't even know how. I've never burned eggs. It was a, it was a metaphor. 
I actually cook great eggs. It's not getting me to heaven, though. That omelet's not good enough. All right. So I just want to pause, and there's a reason I'm sitting on this so much. Because, again, if this is normal or mundane or plain to us, let it break your heart again this morning. Let it break your heart again this morning that you have fallen so short. Every single one of us in our own ways have fallen so short, and he knew it, and he sent his son to do something about it. And if that just doesn't make you just want to, like, weep, I don't know what will. He had to die for you. He had to die for me, and he chose to do it willingly. And even though we've sinned, his grace and mercy, which separate him from everyone and everything, did what had to be done. That's everyone from the white liar to the serial killer. The person who stole a pack of gum to the person who robbed a bank. The person who looked at a woman lustfully and the person who committed adultery. The problem is serious. The cost is huge. The penalty is deep. The debt is unpayable. God knew this and did something about it. Is God good, just, and righteous? Yes, and always will be and always has been. Always has been and always will be. I do want to point out one other thing with this idea because I think it's important to exegete why people have a problem with this. Like why, why does it rub so many people wrong that God can just go and forgive things? And I think there's people in the room that have these questions. Um, and I know that because just a few weeks ago, a couple of you asked me them. But, but like how can God be good if he's just pardoning heinous sins? Well, like how can God be good just to, just to let a pedophile go? How can God be good to just willy-nilly forgive a murderer? Like, Hitler could really be in heaven. Are you serious? How is that a good God? Anybody, like, willing to say that you thought these thoughts? Like, had these questions? Thank you. I have as well. So how can he be good? Like, how can he see these sins that I think we would view as far worse and them just go unpunished, people just getting on scot-free? Just, I need you to hear my voice, family. God never abandoned his justice. He had to fulfill it. Him pardoning sin, him saying like, hey, you, you just can't do it and you've made a lot, a lot of mistakes, um, but I need to do it for you. That is him not abandoning justice. That is him taking every due penalty and putting it on his son who had to deal with that, the pain of that, the struggle of that. What we all deserved, because you're right. You are right, those things deserve punishment. But friends, it's been paid on him. So yes, he's good. Yes, he's just. And no, he's not ignoring or pardoning heinous sins. He had to put it all on himself. And I don't know about you, but I think I'm way quicker to point fingers at people who have problems than offer to take their penalty. Oh, man. Well, how could they let the murderer in? Well, are you willing to die for him? I was pretty clear about that, too. Not many of us would even die for a righteous person, much less someone less than I gotta skip some stuff. <laughs> Y'all know how this goes. <laughs> I think the reality is that this type of grace is hard to understand. And as we talk about it and how crazy it is and life-changing it is and, and just, just revolutionary, his grace and what he did for us really is, it can be hard to understand. Why? Because we don't see it anywhere else. It's the whole idea that people who didn't grow up with a healthy father in their house have trouble viewing God as what? A father, that makes sense. 
Like, of course. And I just, for anybody in the room that maybe that's your experience, I want you to know God is your perfect heavenly father and humans are broken and will always fail you. He won't. He won't. And I know that that is hard for many of us. But he won't. But I think grace is the same thing. The reason we say, well, this is just mind-blowing grace. How can, how can God just say, like, oh, well, you did all these things, got you covered? Like, how can he do that? How can he? The reason it's hard for us to understand is because none of us have the ability to offer grace like that. None of us. So we don't see that type of, we can see bits of it. We can see bits of that grace from our spouses. We can see bits of that grace from leaders or family. Or, but we can never, we can never see the full encompassing grace of God through humans who are broken. We can't. So, so it's hard for us at times to conceptualize this grace because we haven't seen it other places. But I want to tell you that we have seen it and it really matters. So my second point is this. Christ died to demonstrate it. Christ died to demonstrate. Look at verses 25 and 26. I love that I, got, I pulled this word straight out of scripture. It's not just being alliterative. God, for verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Listen, he did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed before unpunished. Pause. If you have those questions, it's right here, y'all. If you have those questions of like, well, how can he let these things go? I've seen people do horrible things and God hasn't intervened right here. In his forbearance, which means patience with us, he had left the sins committed before unpunished. So he did it to demonstrate he died. He did what he did. He came down and lived the life that he lived and died on the cross and raised back up from the grave. He did it. That's what it is to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Christ died to demonstrate is the single best demonstration in the history of the world. How many of you have just watched an excellent movie? Well, where are my theater folk at? My nerds. I'm just kidding. No, no theater folk? Nobody likes to go watch a good show? Anybody? Okay. Ben, of course. <laughs> Love you. I'm kidding. I know you're a theater guy. I didn't know that. Well, whatever it might be, think about the things you enjoy, the things that you, you go and, like I'm, like, I'm a football fan. When I go and watch a really good game, not the AFC championship, that's for sure. But when I watch a really good game, it, it enthralls me, right? It pulls me in. Why? It's a demonstration of skill and talent and uh, people achieving, people who are the best of the best, and I love to watch it. If, again, if you're a movie enthusiast, gosh, you watch a good like Leonardo DiCaprio flick, the man never misses, right? He's just awesome. He's, it's so, it's, you watch him and you just get pulled in. Friends, this is the best demonstration in the history of the world. This is the most captivating show, if you will, that you'll ever watch or experience. It's better than any game, better than the best movie you've ever watched. It can pull you in in a way that it doesn't just last for an hour and a half until the movie's over. It changes your life forever. I've never watched a movie that changed my eternity. I've surely never watched a Ravens game that changed my eternity. I wasn't even joking, but... He died as a demonstration. Like, how about this? Have you ever just met someone, oh, and don't elbow him, but like, who's just all talk? Like, they say tons of stuff. They always got something they're going to do, and they, they're the ones who sign up for events, and 50% of the time don't show up, and then you have to, like, get new people to do it for you. And, like, they're just, you know, they're the worst. All right, we can all be that person, okay? Um, 
but you got the person who's all talk, right? They have a billion big ideas, but they do little to nothing about it. Can I just tell you that Christ talked the biggest talk of all time, literally called himself God, and then went and did every single word that he said. Every single one. So if you're ever like, I don't know, can I really trust this God thing? Well, if you trust any human in your life, then yeah, you better be trusting God. He's the only one who's done every single thing he said. Every single one. And he made big claims, did he not? And yet he went and he fulfilled it. And his death, which we're hearing about for the first time in Paul's letter to the Romans. In fact, he, he didn't mention Jesus from verse, chapter 1, verse 8, all the way to now. Like You don't see the name Jesus in those two chapters. And he's talking about the death. And listen, it was the ultimate demonstration. It demonstrated what grace really is. It demonstrated what mercy really is. It demonstrated what love really is. This says specifically it demonstrated his righteousness and his patience for you. Hey, if you're looking around and things don't seem like they're in fruition yet, and you're like, God, where you been? I've been praying. I want things to change. I want there to be a difference. His patience is on you. Do you maybe just think he's actually giving you time? I wonder how often we're like, God, do something about it. Well, if he did it now, he'd have to strike you with lightning. So just consider it good that he's giving you time. It demonstrated all these things, and it's the most amazing demonstration. Verse 25 literally says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice. Like he said, hey, look, this is what I'm giving you, and it's the only thing you'll ever need. It's the only thing you'll ever need, and he presented it to us. It was meant to show us something. It was meant to change hearts and change minds, that through faith in the sacrifice that God's grace provided, we could be saved. And I love to call it the great exchange. It's the great exchange. My goodness, friends, we need to see and let it break our hearts afresh this morning that God saw your unrighteousness. He saw my unrighteousness. He looks behind closed doors when you don't think anybody sees what you've been doing, that you've been hiding, the ways you've treated people, the ways you've acted, the things you've lied about, the things that you hide and hide and hide, the dark corners of your life. He sees every single one of them and looks at you and says, you're worth it. And he brings his righteousness and replaces is your unrighteousness, even though we're completely unworthy. But here's the thing. When we come to know him, not only are we righteous, but we're not unworthy anymore. He says we're worthy. I mean, it's just amazing. Because here's the thing. Like, I've forgiven people in my life, but it still leaves a bad taste in my mouth about them. I still have preconceived notions. Not even pre. I've conceived notions about them because I've seen them act certain ways. I know what they've done to me. And, and I'm a human. So even though I've done my best to forgive, I, I still got a stain there. I still got a blemish there. You know what Christ says? He washed you white as snow. He doesn't look at you and say, I know what you've been doing and I forgive you because I have to. He says, I know what you've been doing and I forgive you because I love you. Do you see the difference? I mean, it's mind-blowing. It's just I just think if more people really understood what a relationship with Christ can do for you, what it can do in you and through you, how it changes us, we would just be jumping out of our seats every other which way. You wouldn't just be staring at me like, wow, he's sweating and getting really into it. You'd be getting into it. You'd be like punching your neighbor because you're so hyped about it. And then we would have to talk about how you shouldn't punch people, you know, sanctification. It's the most beautiful demonstration ever. I just, I just, friends, friends, have you watched the show? Oh, have you experienced it? Oh, have you been in the game and you're watching and you're like, this is so beautiful. I can't even, I can't even fathom what else I would want in life. Have you seen the demonstration? 
And I would encourage you, if you've seen some of it, there's more. Oh, if you've seen some of it, there's so much more. I don't know about you, but I got issues. Anybody got issues in the room? I got problems, okay? I think right now I stink a little bit. You know, it is what it is. We're all humans. But I got to tell you, it excites me that I think in 10, 15, 20 years, I'm going to know so much more about Jesus than I do now. I'm going to be able to experience him deeper then because I'm going to have the opportunity to grow with him more. Friends, oh my gosh, I talked to uh, some of my seasoned folk in the room, okay? I almost used the O word. I'm not going to do that, though. Talk to some of my seasoned folk and to see some of you 60, 70, 80 years old experiencing new grace in your life is amazing. That's amazing. That is so encouraging to me as someone a little bit on the younger side. I don't feel it all the time. Okay, my kids, they're making me age really fast. I've only experienced like a tiny piece of this demonstration. How about you? That's what we're going to do today. Really, for the rest of at least my time, I don't know. I have a ton of notes that I'm skipping at this point, y'all know. We got to give you the opportunity to get, get in the game. Oh my gosh, to experience a little bit of the show, experience a little bit of what he came to demonstrate to you. So, if you look up front, we have communion across the stage. There's a few things I want to do in this time. In a minute or two here, we'll, we'll put the lights down a little bit. This is going to be you and Jesus because I just, I, I had a million ideas of how I wanted to go about this. And, you know, there's ways we can lead uh, altar calls. There's ways that we can call people to salvation. There's ways we can do calls to repentance, things like that, right? And who does the ultimate work? The Holy Spirit. Not me, not a mentor in your life, not a pastor in your life. I mean, they can, of course, play a role, but the Holy Spirit has to talk to you, and I'll tell you this. If you hear from the Holy Spirit, it will matter so much more than hearing Phil's words. So we're going to give some time. <clears throat> I'll explain communion for those that maybe don't know. Communion is simply taking of the elements in remembrance of what he did, a remembrance of this demonstration, this amazing thing he did for you. So we're going to let you take it on your own. I'm not going to lead it. We're not taking it all together. This is you and the Spirit of God in you. And, and Jesus is your best friend leading you to take this as you will. But when you do, you can take it up here. You can take it in your seat. You can get on your knees at the altar and just thank God and take it. But you'll take the bread and you'll remember that his body was broken for you. And you'll flip the cup and you'll take the grape juice and remember that it is his blood spilled for you. But I want to encourage a couple things in this time. Communion is for those who have stepped into a relationship with Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, I believe, and other places talk about this. Um, but here's the thing. While a, a non-believer, someone unsure about this, is not to take communion yet, oh my goodness, I just want you to hear this. Justified freely by grace, you can make that decision this morning to follow him. I mean, if you're hearing my voice and something is stirring in you and you're like, I don't really know what's going on and I'm not even sure if I've believed this stuff. Maybe you're like outwardly, I know I don't. I got dragged here. Oh my goodness, it's the best decision you could ever make. Romans 10, 9 simply says, believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that he is Lord and Savior and you will be saved. You can make that decision this morning. And the beautiful thing about our doubt is God's not scared of it. We have to let him in before he can ever figure it out. So let him in this morning. And if you choose to make that decision, you can do that however you want. You can do that in your seat. You, you and him, you could do that with a neighbor, someone you got a question and let them pray with you. You can come up here and just get on your knees in front of Jesus and say, I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I know that you hear me. And I want what we've been talking about. 
I want to, to have eternal life. I want to understand that my sin is now separated from me. I pray that somebody would make that decision this morning. Now, for those who have made that decision, Matthew 5 and other places is pretty clear that when you come to the altar, if you have something against a brother, that you should drop your gift and, and be reconciled. There's other scripture that talks about not coming to the communion, not coming to the altar but with unclean hearts, right? If you've got unrepentant sin in your life and some of you already, you know what I'm talking about. I don't know, but God's saying it to you. And the beautiful thing is this is as true for you as when you first came to know Jesus. So if you've known him for years, but you've been walking in something, hey, friends, give it up now. Offer it to him. That could look, again, a million ways. That could mean you're so convicted. You come up here and before you take one of these cups, you just get on your knees in front of the Lord and said, Father, take it. You know what I've been doing, and I'm, I'm done with it. I don't want it anymore, because literally what this says to us, look at the end. It says, do we nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold it. Knowing God will cause you to want to live for him. Knowing God will cause you to want to follow him, and he's so gentle with your sin. Not only has he already handled it, but he's willing to deal with it again and again and again. And again, so maybe you got to confess something this morning. you got to give it to the Lord. you got to submit it to him before you take one of these cups. And then for everyone as they take, I would really encourage you to take it in whatever posture you would uh, be led to take it in. If that's just getting on your knees at your seat, if that's you and your spouse taking it together and giving the sacraments to one another, oh gosh, please do something like that, whatever. But, but please do not be concerned about what God's doing to the person to your left. Or what God's doing to the person you're right. Because we can do this thing, especially in a big church, where we get so self-conscious about what other people are experiencing with the Lord that we miss what he's doing right here. What he's doing right here. So we're going to open this time. Um, and again, there is no form to this. Uh, we'll give it however long. Um, but this is time for you and your Savior, Jesus. If you need to make the decision, please make the decision and tell someone. If you need to repent, repent. Because we're going to have to do it over and over and over and over again. And take the sacraments in, in a way that's, that's honoring and, and getting in front of the holiness that is our king. This time is yours. I want to share a story as you can continue to stay in your spaces. Uh, a true story of a court case where there was a vagrant um, who was in trouble for living quite a few places that, that he wasn't supposed to be, uh, owed quite a, a debt for multiple infringements that he had committed. And the judge in this court case slammed the gavel down and said guilty of all charges because he had done all of them. And after the judge slammed the gavel and said guilty, this judge got down out of the judgment seat, took off his robe, and gave the man the money to pay the fines. And that's what Christ did for you. And that's actually only a microcosm of what Christ did for us. But it, the verdict for us was guilty. And then that same judge got out of the judgment seat and paid the cost of what we owed. That's, that's my Jesus. That's why I come here. Because he is worthy. And we owe all to him, and yet he gave it freely. So, Father, we submit this time to you, and we ask that this would just be an incense to you, um, that this would just put a smile on your face.
of your people, your children, getting together and worshiping you in the ways that you've commanded us to. Father, if anybody in this room made a decision to follow you for the first time, please uh, compel them to tell someone to celebrate. It's the best decision they could ever make. And if someone uh, has decided to turn from a sin, to give something up, to to repent, the, the Bible literally says that the angels rejoice when a single sinner repents. So, Father, you're celebrating. Thank you that you take such joy in us. In a way of closing before we worship, I think the simple question we ask is what's next? And out of what Paul talks about, I'm just going to simply suggest this, that our next step is to embrace the sacrifice, embrace what he did for us, and boast about nothing but him, verse 27. Where then, if this is true for us, where then is the boasting? It is excluded. We are justified by faith, apart from our works, and this is available to every single person. We embrace what he did. It changes our entire life, and it leads us to live a life where we boast in nothing but him. Why? We have nothing to offer, but we met the one who has everything to offer, and that makes me want to follow him. Grace family, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but praise be to God that he sent his son Jesus, that we may be justified freely through him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your son. I can only imagine how it tore at your heart to give him up, and yet you did it anyways. We simply submit this time to you and say you are worthy of it all. Be glorified. Be magnified in this place. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stay in your posture. You can stand to worship. You can do whatever the Spirit would lead you, but we're going to worship one more time.